Welcome to Bethel Brandon Sunday Message. Please head over to our website, BethelBrandon.ca, to figure out how we can best serve you. But I also find that, that during Christmas, it magnifies the emotion that perhaps we are best going through. Right, And so if, if, if there are people who have lost loved ones and are feeling that feeling of mourning, well, Christmas seems to kind of put that on steroids, does it not? Either that or, or you're feeling lonely and all these things. It's just, it seems, seems to be magnified a little bit. I'm not too sure exactly why that is. I know that there are people who are, who have, uh, who are away from family or people who have family that are away from them. They have family that are at war at this particular time. And so my prayer and, and our prayer as a church is that God will be with you and that God will be blessing you um, this season. And, and so that is an important thing for us to realize. The other thing that I realize is this, and perhaps you have discovered this, that Christmas sometimes can bring the crazy out of some of us. Have you found that? It is, it is kind of crazy. I remember a few years ago, I did a sermon series, but I started off the series with a number of stories which were entitled People are crazy at Christmas. Perhaps you had remembered that. I shared stories of people who got arrested for beating people with Christmas trees. Uh, there, was a, there was a story that I had about a, a, the gavel goat, the 50-foot goat in Sweden that, that they have every winter. And of the 50 years they've had it, 38 years it has burnt down. There's the thought of the upside-down Christmas tree. People who dress their pets at Christmas all of those things, 720,000 lights on a house. It has 20, 40 miles of lights and eight miles of extension cords. You know, nativity scenes that were the most original ones that I'd ever seen. People can be crazy at Christmas. And I had one more left in the file, but I ran out of sermons to go with the series. And I pulled that one out for this occasion. I don't know why it has, but for some reason I thought about it. And, and, and under the file of people are crazy at Christmas, I introduced to you the Christmas bonus. Christmas bonus is a wonderful thing, is it not? But you know, this year is probably difficult for a lot of companies as we have been hit by our economy. And, and it, it is... Um, it is kind of a crazy thing, especially when it comes to that, and, and we appreciate the kindness of employers who, who are able to extend some note of appreciation. But I have found that sometimes certain Christmas bonuses, you might as well have no Christmas bonus at all. And perhaps you are here and maybe you have experienced some of these things. What I did is I kind of pulled out the top 10 Christmas bonuses which proved to us that people are crazy at Christmas. One person reported getting a card saying, have a, have a chappy Christmas. And on the card, they had a roll of chapstick on the card. Someone said this, my wife received a $5 gift card for Starbucks with a note that says, thanks a latte. Oh, come on. There's an individual who works in Boston, received a sealed envelope full of coupons that were only good on the west coast of the United States. A young man who was Jewish and did not eat meat received a ham for Christmas. And when they, they had a letter, they spelt his name twice, uh, incorrectly twice. One employer received a package of flower seeds. After the company had made an announcement, they had made a $156 million profit that year. One employee 
who after receiving a turkey for the last 15 years had their company have a little bit of trouble in that, that year sent a picture of a silhouette of a turkey. Here's one that I kind of like. Says there's, there's a, this one man who reported, he said, having received a company-wide email that everyone was getting a $25 Tim Hortons gift card. At the end of the day, I didn't get mine, so I asked the CEO she had, had, uh, that she had uh, emailed, it didn't apply. Uh, she, she said, well, I'm sorry, it didn't apply to people who are in IIT, and so you don't get the bonus. And he says, I, I guess that wouldn't have bothered me if I wasn't the only person in IT. <laughs> one person received a bonus from his boss for a free night at his B&B, but the problem is you had to spend two nights to get that one night for free. My, my company, this one said, person, my company changed their logos in June. So for Christmas bonus, they were giving leftover hats and TVs with the t- and T-shirts with the, the old logo as gifts. But they didn't have enough. So they said, if, if you don't want it, can you please be kind enough to give it to someone else who didn't? So it's crazy. My favorite one is this. Last year, my wife got a roll of toilet paper with a note taped to it said, we're on a roll. Now, sometimes I just think craziness seems to rule at Christmas. And if we are to kind of use terms that describe Christmas, if you had one word to describe what Christmas is, what would it be? There'd be a whole bunch of wonderful words. But I would be willing to think that one of those words would be exasperation. Because sometimes we feel exasperated at Christmas, that intense, irritating feeling of of annoyance. Christmas exasperation. That's almost like a a, um, contradiction in terms. It's the paradox that we get exasperated at Christmas, but the reason and the purpose for Christmas, Christmas is totally different for the feeling that maybe we are experiencing. It's in that category as to these things ought not so to be. And if All we experience at Christmas is exasperation. Is it really, folks, is it really Christmas at all? It's good to ask ourselves, how do I actually enjoy Christmas? Well, I think one of the things we have to do is we need to say, what is it all about? What are the the indispensable ingredients in Christmas And we need to prioritize those and we need to practice them. And if you can do that, I think that we get back to what it really means to celebrate Christmas. And this is important this morning. Because I think that this is the quintessential point of John chapter 5. And if you're just here with us new or if you're watching new online, we're going through the book of John. And we're on John chapter 5. And it is a time where Jesus begins to speak to the people who are the Pharisees. And, and if you can open up your, your Bible apps or if you have your Bibles with you and you want to turn to that, and if you have a red letter edition, you'll notice that a majority of what is said in the spot that I'm going to read, it's red. These are mostly words of Jesus. And he makes the same point as we do about Christmas, about necessary ingredients. Because in the same way as Christmas is this, if you don't have the essential ingredients, is it really Christmas? We have to ask our same, our, our, the same question about, about our faith, really. 
If there are certain things that are not in our faith, they go missing in our faith. They are indispensable ingredients to the Christian faith. Is it really Christianity at all? Now, for those of you people who are uh, cooks and bakers and whatnot, I would imagine that you probably have a section in your library that is just recipe books. My wife has a whole section there in, uh, on our bookshelf on just recipe books. There's one recipe uh, book that she doesn't use, which, which is probably more akin to me, and it is what is called the, the five recipe or the five ingredient recipe book. Anybody have any of those four recipe recipe or four ingredient recipe book, five ingredient recipe book? And that's not my wife's. That is mine because it is most representative of my culinary aptitude. That might be the best way to put it. And the reason that this is such a good recipe book is because all it is is five recipes. Easy peasy, perhaps we'll call it. The problem with this recipe book is this, is that if you are missing an ingredient, it don't taste very good. What do you think of this? Something's, something's missing. And there are certain dishes, especially the five ingredient dishes or the four ingredient dishes, that if you don't have that ingredient, there will be something wrong with it. The primary elements become important. And with that, I have a question for you. How does your faith taste? Is your faith missing an ingredient or two ingredients? And if they are the essential ingredients, we need to take a look and ask is this really Christianity at all? Interesting thought, right? If your Christianity is missing love, does it not cease to be Christianity? If your Christianity is missing grace and forgiveness, if your Christianity is missing Jesus as the Messiah, is it really Christianity at all? And so this is what Christmas is about. Christmas is the fact if you take Jesus out of Christmas and the fact that it is God being born, we call it the Incarnation. You miss out on it. Is it really Christmas? Well, you might be celebrating something, but ultimately, is it Christmas? And so when we get into the book of John, John chapter 18, I believe I'm going to be reading from John chapter, six, John chapter 5, verse 16 to 47. Here's the point that I think Jesus is trying to make, and I'm hoping that I can articulate this in a way that will speak to your heart this morning, because I believe that it speaks to all of us. For those of you kind of just joining in on the conversation last week, we talked about a miracle that had happened in Jesus' ministry at the pool of Bethesda, where there was a man who had been lame for 38 years, and he picks up his bed and he walks. What a fantastic miracle if you stop and think of somebody not walking for 38 years, not having the muscle and all of the things that go with that, all of a sudden getting up and walking. This is a huge miracle. But the Pharisees, instead of seeing the miracle because it happened on a Sabbath, and Jesus kind of had that habit, didn't he? He always kind of healed on the Sabbath. It's almost like rubbing salt into the wound or something. You know, it's just the way that, that Jesus had it. And, and I believe that he precipitates the conversation by doing this. That the story was a, about a person who couldn't walk, but really the story 
comes out that it's about a people who couldn't see. And so with that, let me read to you John chapter 5, verses 16 to 47. I know it's long, but as we go through this series, we want to read every single word of John. Amen? So John chapter 5, verses 16 to 47 says this. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that that God was his father, making him equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, who... Whoever, uh, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater th- works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son." That all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father who does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation." I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man but I say these things that you might be saved." He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to receive his light. But I have greater witness than John, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, they are works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because Because uh, whom he sent him, you do not believe. You search the scriptures for them. You think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you're not even willing to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and do not receive me, uh, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive. How can you believe who who uh, receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse, accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For you believe Moses, you would believe in me. For he, he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Wow. 
there's quite a bit there. I don't know if I'm going to be able to give you everything at length in this short period of time. But I want to perhaps leave you with something during this Christmas season that will help us to think a little bit deeper in terms of our own faith. Now, when I was in Bible college, we had a, 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 um, a subject which was called Christology, which is the study of Christ. The unique thing about this passage of Scripture is that this is a lesson on Christology by Christ himself. It really is an incredible passage of Scripture. It's not always easy to decipher everything that he is saying, but what he has to say has huge impact. Let me just say this as we get into this, that if you were to hear today what he said, what would your thoughts be? If someone comes up and stands up and says all these things to you, what would your belief be? What would you say? You might say, this guy's kind of crazy. This person is kind of uh way out there a little bit. And so this is probably why they felt the way they did. And, and this is an important thing to understand. That unless what he is saying is absolutely true, then he really wasn't the good man that people say he was. There will be people who say, well, I believe that, that Jesus was a good man. Well, if that's, if that's the way you feel, you have to take a look at this and say, well, maybe he wasn't such a good man. Because if he's saying these things and they're not true then he really, he was a big liar. He really wasn't a good man. Or, or what you might say is this. He must be a lunatic. Because if what he is saying is true, then that says an awful lot. That, that has something to say to us today. There are a number of people who say, well, Jesus never really actually said he was the son of God. There'll be people of different religions, people who are, who are in cults who will say, well, Jesus never really said he was the Messiah. Well, if that's the case, they have never read this passage of Scripture here. As a matter of fact, they probably never read the book of John. Because John is all over this, continually repeating the fact that, we, that he was actually God. If you take a look uh, at the passage of Scripture, where it says the bone of contention with the Jews was that he believed that Jesus broke the Sabbath and that he claimed that he was equal with God. He continually does this. Even Jesus' enemies knew exactly what Jesus was saying. It was a continuous thing. If you read through the book of John, and, and in the book of John, like, uh, like it is with all the other Gospels, one thing, there are things in John that the other Gospels don't have. One of them is what's called the I Am Statements. There are seven of them throughout the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. All of those statements are statements where Jesus is saying, I am God. And so this conversation, and you can tell that Jesus is probably exasperated, is saying, here is something that you need to understand, and I am going to spell it out in terms that are absolutely undeniable to you. So for the best way for me to kind of break this down, this passage of Scripture has three different types of dialogue. The first part we'll just call the cooperative dialogue. Second part is kind of what I will call the courtroom dialogue. And then the last part is kind of like the consequential dialogue. This is, this is as a result of all this. Here's the facts. So if you could give me just a couple of minutes and, and maybe a bit of patience as I try and, and bring home something which I think is absolutely huge for us today. The first part 
is what we will call the cooperative dialogue. Now, the cooperative dialogue is, is basically this, that Jesus is actually saying things. Where he says, the Father and I work together in conjunction in unity together because we have the same purpose and we are God. And so we see this in verse 17 where he says, the Father and I have been working. That they are cooperative in what we call purpose. And then he goes on in verse 19 and he says, The Son of Man can do nothing of himself, but he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Which means that not only are they cooperative, the same in purpose, they are the same in performance. If you read a couple of verses later, he says this, the Father, for the, As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. You notice the, prog the progression? Same in purpose, same in performance. We are unified in power. And he begins to leave a, a message which says, hey, I am not leaving any doubt for you as to who I am. Finally, if you take a look in verse 23, it says that all, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. They're not only similar and cooperative in power, they are similar and popular are in, in cooperative in praise. Just like you worship God, I'm in that same category. And he says all of these things because he doesn't want there to be a debate. He doesn't want there to be any error in judgment. He doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding. Why is this important? Because if he is not God, there's not a lot of difference between Christianity and any other religion. If Jesus is not God then he's put at an equal value of some other prophet or some other individual who had some nice things to say, who was a moral person and has some kind of code that he has put together. Christianity is much more than that. And John, the apostle, is saying, these are the words that Jesus had said, that I am God. And that's why every time we take up, a commun we take up communion at the first part of the month, hey, this is the broken body. This is the blood not just of some nice, good individual. This was God who came and shed his blood for my sins. When we experience baptism, it's the, it's the death of the old and the resurrection is talking about these things which are absolutely so important for us to understand. So we have, we have what, is, what is called the cooperative dialogue. And then he begins to shift. So for those of you who are kind of studying this, there is kind of a shift in the conversation. And it goes from being a cooperative dialogue to what I will call the courtroom dialogue. He begins to speak in courtroom dialogue, in legal language. He speaks judici ju judicially. That's it. I think I got that right. And this would be something that the Pharisees would be very familiar with. He begins to speak and a deeper level into their language because they would do the same thing. They would present an argument and they would cause you to come to a conclusion, to come to a verdict. And this becomes very important because if Jesus begins to believe and begins to prove that he is God, it becomes a logical conclusion that we are accountable to him.
And so what he does is he, he gives detail of what is called the foretelling judgment. And then from there, he kind of says, here are my witnesses. Here's why I proved that I am. And so you, you, you take a look at these and, and see what Jesus is trying to do. Like the Bible says, it is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. But what Jesus does here is he begins to talk about the fact that there are two judgments which are coming up. And the thing is, when we hear that, there are some people who just try and, 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 and debate this. Well, you know, if God was a good God, if God was really good, then he would allow everybody. And he goes into this. But, but we can't ever debate and know exactly what God is because he is God. And when we stop and consider the price that he paid, God is, God is the one who determines judgment. The other, person, the other person will say this, well, I choose not to believe that. So what I really want to say to you is that I have my personal truth. You have your personal truth, I have my personal truth. The problem with that is this, is that my personal truth and your personal truth mean nothing unless it is backed up by reality. What is really true? I could tell you that there's not a Christmas tree there, and I could do everything I could to convince you. But the reality is, is that there is a Christmas tree there. And so this is the thing that Jesus begins to talk, that there is two judgments. If you take a look in verse 28, Jesus discusses and deliberates the fact that an hour is coming when all graves will hear his voice. This is what he's saying. In verse 20, he says, you will either be resurrected to the resurrection of life, or you'll be resurrected to the resurrection of condemnation. He spells it out. He doesn't avoid the situation at all. He says, there is going to be a calling that comes one day. For all of us who have died, they will hear his voice. There will be a resurrection and there will be a judgment for those who, who, who love Jesus. Now, this isn't going to be a judgment that, where they will face God for their sins. That will have already been determined. But it will be a reward as to what we have done or what we have not done in our service to Christ. But then Jesus also talks about another judgment for those who choose not to follow Jesus. Or those who have chosen to figure that there was another avenue other than the blood of God. And you see, here is something which is of absolute truth for us to understand. That there is no other avenue. Well, if I, if I, I listen to the teachings of this individual, if I, if I, if I, I do all these rules, if I, I set this penance, then this will be the thing that will get me to heaven. And Jesus says, no, there is only one way. It is through the blood of God. And we understand, first of all, and this is the whole thing about what Christmas is about, is that God came. God is the one who took the initiative to reach us. We were hopelessly lost. There is a judgment, and the default is not that we're all good. The truth is that we're all bad, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin, it says in Romans, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he, he begins to talk about that. You can't substitute the sayings of a good individual with the blood of God. And so this becomes something which is huge. Now the Pharisees who are listening are convinced that they are probably part of the life one. And he is trying to expose to them this. If you don't have the necessary ingredients... In your faith, you can't really say that it is a faith in God. 
There has to be the right necessary ingredients in this. And can I just say, if we could stop at this point and realize that all these things that Jesus is talking about, every church which teaches the truth of the gospel is based on this message that Jesus is saying right now. Every missionary who has chosen to go on the mission field have done so because what Jesus is talking about right now. Those people who have sacrificed their life, those people who have been martyred and killed for their faith, has all been based upon these statements that Jesus says right now. And so Jesus says, there is a judgment. We need to realize that this exists. He says, marvel not that these things will take place. And the most, the most sobering thought of it is, is this. This isn't the words of somebody else. This is the words that Jesus teaches us himself. And it's important for us to understand that. And he says, you don't believe me, I've got witnesses. If we're in a court of law, if you're trying to judge this as in a court of law, I've got witnesses. There are four witnesses that he has. If you take a look in, in the scriptures, in verse 33, there was what I'll call the wilderness voice. John the Baptist you know, Jesus says he was a burning, shining lamp. He was the one who first told you what was going to happen. Not only that, verse 36, he says, the works, the wonders, the, 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 the signs that you've seen, you just saw a guy who was not walking for 38 years stand up and walk on his own accord, and you don't get it. You don't understand it. He says there's the, the witness of the Father. The Father who sent me is what it says in verse 37. And then there's the last one. It says the word in verse 39. It's not by abiding in you. And so all of a sudden, he kind of, he kind of gives this dissertation based on what it would look like in a court of the law. And he says, here is the judgment. Here are the witnesses. You need to see the facts, folks. You need to see what's taking place. And so what happens is we go to the last part, which is what I'll call the consequential dialogue. And he says in verse 42, he says, I know that you do not have the love of God in you. So we find out that they became loveless. And verse 30, 43 goes on and says, you know what? He says, you won't receive me, but someone else comes in their own name, you'll receive them. So once... They become loveless. They become led astray. He says, you know what? Moses said it all. And if you can't believe Moses isn't seeing it, you're just, you're just not going to see it at all. He says they become lost. You stop and consider. You can have everything else together, but if you don't have the necessary ingredients, your faith becomes in jeopardy. And that's the story that John wants to tell while he's writing the book to tell his generation that would not have witnesses of Jesus alive at that time and every generation after that. If Christianity is going to be Christianity, you need to understand that he is the Son of God and you need to realize that he is love. And if you have missed out on those, then you have missed out on what your faith is really about.
Later on, Jesus begins to talk. Someone says, what's the greatest command? Well, there's two, and the two are equal. That's what he says. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything, he says, hangs on those words, those truths. If you want to know what it's about, that's what it's about. If, you, if um, your faith has lost its love, it loses its identity, it loses its character, it is the indispensable ingredient. It is the one thing that if you serve, if it's not in the dish that you are serving, they'll say, there's something wrong here. And as I take a look at the challenges that we face as the church... A lot of the challenges that we have faced have been because there have been missing ingredients in the character of our faith. It's not true. It is the indispensable ingredient. Jesus later on, and John says this, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And I believe in many instances the Christian faith seems to taste terrible. And I'm thinking there's something wrong that, that we have somehow abandoned or substituted the indispensable elements that make us sweet and good to the taste. Isn't it true? You ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Those people who've gotten wedding, you probably quoted that verse, the fact that, that now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Take a look. I know that I've mentioned this before. In Corinthians, they talk about spiritual gifts. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, they talk about the gifts of the Spirit and all these incredible things that happen in the Spirit. And for some reason, in the middle of that, he stops talking about it. And he says this, You can have the voice of an angel, but if you don't have love, you're like a clanging cymbal. So you can have all these wonderful things that represent and look really good to other people. But if you don't have love, what happens is you become boastful and arrogant and proud and hateful. So the question for us this morning is this. How does your faith taste? Is it missing something? Has your faith made you hate people? If so, is it really Christianity? Are you in danger of exasperating the Savior that you are seeking to serve and to love? Let me just tell you right now, I don't think that love is the trump card that covers everything. It's not the trump card that covers um, uh, lifestyles that aren't glorifying to God. It, 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 when John the Baptist begins baptizing at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says this, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And Jesus baptizes with that same level of repentance. So in other words, it's not like, well, it doesn't matter what you do. You just got to love Jesus, and that's what it's all about. It's not like it covers everything. But what it does is this, is that no matter where anyone is that, there is a mandate for us as believers in Jesus to actually love people. And that's why faith in Christ can be a conundrum. Can it not? It can be that thing which is awfully difficult to do because I am required to love people even if they don't agree and even if I don't approve or even if I don't align. I don't agree with you. I don't approve of that lifestyle. 
you're not in the same party that I'm in. But despite the fact, we need to realize that love does not come with a footnote, doesn't come with small print that says, well, you know, in this case, I give an exception. You're required to actually love him. And when we do, and when the church does that, we become flavorful again. And what a greater message for us to understand as we enter Christmas. And there's the temptation to look to other things, to realize that it was God who came to die for our sins. And that we do these things not because God loves people, but because God is, in fact, love. Incredible thought, eh? Ever hear the story of uh, Jane Rowe? Maybe you don't know or haven't heard of Jane Rowe, but in the United States, a number of decades, there was a huge case which was called Roe versus Wade. Remember that? Jane Roe and, and Joan Wade, and, and it was the battle over abortion rights, and, and eventually Jane Roe had won uh, the decision, and they went on, and there was a whole bunch of things that happened in, 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 in North America as a result. But the story goes on. Eventually, um, Norma, Mc, Mc, uh, Norma McCorvey, which is actually Jane Roe, went on, moved to Dallas, and began operating an abortion clinic. At the same time, Operation Rescue, a Christian organization which was pro-life, is posted right next door. And so as these two entities coexisted, one of the leaders of Operation Rescue, they had a daughter and, and, and she was helping and, and she went outside to have a break and sees another person sitting, I believe, at a bench. I'm not too sure exactly how the story is. If you want to read about it, it's in the, the uh, book called One by Love by, by Gary Thomas. So what happens is she sits beside this person and they begin getting into conversations about Roe versus Wade. She says, well, as a matter of fact, I am Jane Roe. I am the one to whom that case was about. And so this young girl all, found, all of a sudden found herself in a bit of a dilemma. She could have sat there and said, I don't agree with you. I don't approve of your lifestyle. I don't align myself. I'm going to avoid you altogether. Or I could simply love despite the fact that there's differences between the two of us. And what would Jesus do if he met Norma McVeigh? And so what she did is she became Norma McVeigh's friend. And the conversation continued. And Norma McVeigh's heart was softened, started going to church with them. And then one day, Norma McVeigh accepted Jesus as her savior. And all of a sudden, a person who was a huge, perform, huge proponent for the pro-choice movement switches and becomes a huge proponent for the pro-life movement. And it could have switched based on how a Christian decided to flavor her life. And the challenge is for us the same thing today. 
It wasn't a good man that died for you. It was the Son of God who is love that calls on us in the midst of all the confusing things that we have to face today. He says, listen, if it's going to work for you, if this Christianity is going to be effective in any way, you are bound to love people. It has to be part of the equation because if it isn't, then your faith goes south. You lose your love. You are led astray. And eventually, what you have is a form of Christianity, but is it really? So God, I just pray that there will be a challenge this Christmas when we stop and consider what you have done and who you are and the price that was paid by the God of the universe who is not just loving is love. Lord, I pray that that will somehow in some way challenge us as we go home this, uh, this year to go and be with family, if we have neighbors that we disagree with, if there's people that we talk with at work who have different and opposing politics to us, who have opposing and different lifestyles in us, that God, there will be something that will shine through in us. The, the, the indispensable agreement, uh, ingredient that says, no matter what's going to happen, I'm going to love. I'm going to express the love of God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I pray, Father, that you will do something powerful as a result. Because there's a whole world that needs you. And Lord, we want to be the light that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please head over to BethelBrandon.ca to listen to our older messages or maybe connect with us and figure out how we can best serve you. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.